This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Hello, I'm James Denoss, and this is CNIB Read. Welcome to part two of my interview with Katie Miller about her new book, Late Breaking, a collection of her short stories. If you missed part one, you can find it on cnib.ca. So lean back, listen, and enjoy. Aging, with all its little indignities and humiliations, is a consistent theme. Please tell us something about the difficulties of aging for your characters and how they deal with those difficulties, perhaps using Lynn Sparks or Clarissa Pettengill's examples. Okay. Well, Lynn, uh, we first uh, are introduced to Lynn in the story The Last Trumpet, which is the first story in the book. And we see Lynn at his breakfast, and he's reading the paper, and dealing with things like breakfast dishes. And he's he's a very methodical man, and he's learned to stack his breakfast dishes in such a way that he can get them to the sink with a minimum number of steps and turns. Uh, he also has little rules for himself. He, uh, he uses a cane, but the cane is kept at the door because the cane is for outside. He does not want to use the cane when he's inside. That's just a concession to age that he will not make at this point. But he's thinking that perhaps he needs to get one of those canes with feet on it. Um, so he, he's he's acknowledging his own inc- increasing weakness, but he's he's holding out out of his own dignity for as long as he possibly can. Uh, Clarissa Pettengill is ninety. Um, And she is the mother of Morgan, who actually is dead before the book begins, but is, interestingly enough, the common denominator of the book. Morgan, one way or another, touches base with every other character, but that is another story. Getting back to Clarissa, uh, her mother, Uh, Clarissa is 90. She uses a wheeled walker. She has a very full life. She's uh, looking ahead in that she's starting to... um, get rid of some of her possessions, you know, weed her books and so on, thinking she might need to downsize. On the other hand, she takes herself out to a restaurant and orders a steak. Um, When she is approached by the waiter, he very condescendingly says, and what can I get you, young lady? And she says, I beg your pardon. And so he starts to speak more loudly. She says, I heard you the first time. I am neither young nor a lady. You may call me ma'am, and you may fetch me a martini. And that was, I'm just hoping that I get some silent applause from older readers (laughs) with that scene. I had a lot of fun with that scene, and it was my little jab at our youth-obsessed culture. Well, she was also quite offended by her placement at a table. Yes, <laughs> close to the washroom. She wanted to sit by the window, damn it. She had come here. She had walked two blocks to get here. She was quite capable of ca- crossing a room if uh, the need arose. Yes, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I've also felt that uh, sometimes uh, time simply uh, devours us mo- morsel by morsel. Mm-hmm. Every day another nibble, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and also she had a very interesting 
would you call it confrontation with Felicity Staines? Oh, yes. Uh, tell us something about now, that. Now, Felicity mm -hmm. Staines is the daughter of Melville Staines, who was the proprietor of the Melville Staines Funeral Home. Now, there are a couple of locations in the book that I had a lot of fun with. <laughs> fun. Uh, one of them is the Melville Staines Funeral Home. Almost everybody at some point shows up in the Melville Staines <laughs> Funeral Home for one reason or another. The other is the Rendezvous Restaurant. I managed to create a Toronto in which there is exactly one restaurant, the Rendezvous, and just about all of my characters show up in the Rendezvous at some point. Anyway, uh, Clarissa is out uh, wheeling her walker one day, getting some uh, exercise, and she notices that the Melville Staines Funeral Home is has changed. It's got a new name, and it seems to be a different kind of place. So she goes in, and she meets Felicity Staines, the daughter who has taken the place over. She also has become, like her father, a mortician. But she's moved on from there, and she hopes to offer a very different kind of service when, as she says, legislation evolves. And that is she's going to offer assisted suicide to clients who will book a day and ha just have a wonderful day, their favorite movies, their favorite food, their favorite drink, and so on. Meanwhile, they've had a sort of um, patch put on their skin, which gets them happier and happier. So by the time the syringe is actually inserted, they don't mind one bit. So this is what Clarissa finally realizes is being offered potentially by this new establishment run by Felicity Staines. And uh, she takes some literature home with her because she's 90 and she's having her problems. And she thinks about it and various things happen. And eventually she returns the, the, the literature to Felicity Staines and says, no, no, uh, my death will come when it comes and it will be mine as my daughter's death was hers. It's a very harsh decision, but, and that was a case of a character taking over. I didn't know that Clarissa was going to do that. I knew she was going to object in some way, but when she made that speech about her death being her own, she was dictating that to me, not the other way around. And that's just an extreme example as, uh, of the gulf between young and old. I would say so, yes. And um, you do indicate that gulf uh, in, in several of these stories. How do you see that gulf? Do you think it can be bridged? Well, I'm remembering when I was younger, and I know that um, I had this notion that, as, that, that old people just didn't feel their feelings quite as acutely as I did. I thought that maybe their feelings very conveniently dried up or atrophied or something and that they they didn't do things like fall in love or break their hearts or feel acute loneliness or any of that stuff. And maybe I believed that because it was convenient for me to believe that. If I realized that they were feeling that they were living their lives as as vibrantly and as dangerously as I was, wow, maybe I would have to have a relationship with them or something. And oh, I didn't want to hang around with old people. Anyway, I don't know if most young people feel that way, but when I was younger, I certainly did. And I think that we maybe have 
um, a deep down fear of aging, we, because aging, of course, is the precursor of death. And that's what we're really afraid of. And that is a, a consistent presence, too, in these stories. And I have to say, I, I felt I felt rather a fondness for Felicity. Um, <laughs> I liked her style. And I wonder, I, I was wondering, okay, I learned only later in the stories uh, the secret she knew. She knew Miranda's secret. Yes, she did. How do you think that affected her? Well, as she says, she discovered Miranda's uh, body after her. She didn't. I'm sorry. She was called in to deal with Miranda's body after Miranda committed suicide, and she looked at Miranda's face and saw an expression on it. And I think she felt very, very sorry for Miranda because, after all, as a child growing up adjacent to the Melville Staines funeral home where Miranda worked as the receptionist, she had she had seen Miranda through many years. Uh, I'm not saying that Miranda was like a mother figure to her, but she she was fond of Miranda in a way. And to see the terror and the horror of encroaching death on Miranda's features affected her. So I think she devoted her life to an finding death. an easier death, finding yeah. an anesthetic for that, if you will. Yes. Yeah. Late Breaking is the title of not only the book but of one of the stories. I wonder what is the origin of the title. Late Breaking actually came late in the writing of that story. And when it came into my mind, I knew it was right because we have Jill in her 60s -hmm. falling in love. Uh, That's almost like a bit of late-breaking news, if you will, Mm -hmm. Uh, and breaking her heart years after she thought anything like that would ever happen or could happen to her. Um, So I think that's when that, as I say, when that phrase came into my mind, it just seemed right for the story. Uh, Also, Jill is in a very peculiar situation in that story. She's on the one hand, dealing with a broken heart and just feeling down in the dumps. On the other hand, to her great surprise, a novel she wrote almost off the top of her head has been nominated for the ridiculously inflated Olympia Featherstone Award for Fiction, which is $500,000, which is bigger than any fictional award that I know of. (laughs) Um, And I assure you, it is fictional. So she's in this weird, strange unreality. On the one hand, she's been treated terribly. On the other hand, she's being treated like royalty. And I think that what she has to do, so that's like late-breaking news in her life. I think what she has to do, her task in the story, is to get back to some kind of reality. And I'd like to think that she does that by the end. I found it also interesting that perhaps more than one character is late. Um, Curtis May, Mm. sitting on the bench with an unopened bottle of wine. And Lynn Sparks says, you're late for dinner. And Curtis May responds, I am late for everything. Yes. Um, I confess to being very, very fond of Curtis. And I'm very pleased that other readers have said the same thing because Curtis is a convicted uh, murderer. He is responsible for the death of Morgan, daughter of Clarissa Pattingill. 
He was, uh, he, he had a drinking problem. He was hopelessly in love with Morgan. And when she spurned him in a drunken rage, he grabbed her by the throat and didn't know his own strength. And so he spent, I believe, 35 years in the Kingston pen. And he has been paroled, living with his mother in Sackville, New Brunswick, working at the kind of job he might have gotten as a teenager in high school, making pocket change and just late for everything, as he puts it. Missed opportunities, unlived lives. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. In the story Higgs Boson, Renal tries to explain the Higgs Boson particle to Miriam. He describes it as something that makes adhesiveness possible. He tells her, without it, a part would have no meaning, because together would have no meaning. What is it that holds the people of late breaking together? What is their Higgs boson? Oh, I would say, in a word, longing. In many cases, they are longing to open their hearts to each other and speak truth to each other, and something is holding them back. Or they are longing to come into their own, to realize who they really are. Uh, or they're longing, perhaps, for youth, or they're longing for a past that they could somehow revisit and change and make better, certainly true of Curtis May. Uh, so I would say the longing uh, is, is very, very human and is, is potentially at least bringing them together. That was part two of my interview with author Katie Miller about her new book of short stories, Late Breaking. Don't miss part three, the conclusion of our discussion. For CNIB Read, this is James DeNoss saying goodbye and good reading. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.